Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verses um, 21, I think it is, through 34. All right, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house at Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons." And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You could be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we draw near to you. And we remember um, in your word where you promised that those of us who draw near to you, you will draw near to us. That you will bring a cleansing, a cleansing of us, our, our, of our hands, Lord. And we, we cling to Jesus for that cleansing. Not just of our physical hands, but of our spiritual hands and and even deeper than that, our very hearts. Like we look to you and we ask you that you would purify our hearts, Lord. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. May we see you, Jesus, as high and lifted up. We resist the devil and the works of the devil. Even now, as the devil would love to distract us from hearing and receiving your word, as we're even going to see in today's sermon. But we resist him. And we believe, Lord, by your power, he will flee from us. Lord, may you compound your grace in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. May you compound it as we humble ourselves before you. In the name, in your name we pray, amen. Well, um, just a a, a short um, review because we're a couple weeks in. Um, We started off with looking at John the Baptist, or at least that's how Mark opens up with John the Baptist, and what John the Baptist is doing is John the Baptist is like anticipating the coming of the king in the kingdom. Like Mark opens up with a prophetic word of promise, uh, you know, in Isaiah and in Malachi of the coming of, of the king and the coming of his kingdom. And so John the Baptist is like anticipating that. And then I think it was last week we saw Jesus coming, and Jesus comes declaring the king and the kingdom is here. Jesus comes preaching, remember that? He's preaching a sermon, he's kind of basically got one sermon, that sermon is, is the kingdom of God is at hand, how do we respond to that? By repenting and believing. So Jesus is declaring the arrival of the king in the kingdom, and this week what we have is we have the demonstration of the king in the kingdom. 
What we have here in this text is kind of what's the kingdom like? What is this king like? Is, is Mark's beginning to unpack that for us by, by telling us the story of the events. That what we see here in this text is this, is that Jesus' activity proves his identity. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say it another way. That we know who Jesus is by what Jesus does. And let me, let me say, let me, I want to dial it in even more, and this will be on the, this will be on the screen. That Jesus is authoritative, because that's what this text is about. Jesus' authority, Jesus' authoritative activity points us to his divine and kingly identity because Jesus is the divine servant king who reigns and rules over everything. How do we respond to him? We repent and believe. What does that look like? We, We submit to him. We humbly submit to him. We humbly follow him with all of our lives, with everything that we have and everything that we are, we give it to him in following and in pursuit of him. Why? Because he is the divine, sovereign, servant king. How do we know that? Well, again, his, his activity, right? His activity, what he does, it points to his identity. And, and listen, again, in the realm of authority. And, and we get that on, on, on our level. Like, like, let me give you an illustration of that, like how authority and identity go hand in hand. I mean, I could give you a dozen of them, but I'll, I'll give you one. I, I used this with the students last Sunday evening. I got to teach the students. It was a blast. And, and I, I used this as an illustration. We were talking a lot about identity. I wasn't quite talking about authority, but it goes hand in hand. Like, like parents in the rooms, especially like dads, imagine this. Imagine your, your child walks into your bedroom and says to you, clean this mess up in here. It looks like a bunch of pigs died. Pigs are living in here. Get these dishes out of here. Can you get that bed made? Can you pick up those dirty clothes? Like, like what would your response be to your child if they said that to you? Like, even if it may be true, right? What would your response be? And even though, like, listen, you say that to your kids all the time. Now, hopefully we're not hypocritical in that and our rooms are somewhat tidy and clean when we say to our kids, hey, get here and clean this mess up. But what's happening in that illustration is there's like a reversal of, of identity, not just of authority. That we understand identity, who I am. I'm the dad. I'm the parent, right? You're the child. Like, that's what we would say to our kids in that moment. If they say that, we'd say, hey, look, don't ever say that to me again. And they would say, well, why? You say that to me all the time. Yeah, that's right, because I'm the parent. Listen, that's your identity. And with that identity, God has given you some authority, over your children. The same thing is happening in this text. What we see is Jesus's authority. Why? Because of, the, of his identity. Who is he? That's the question. I mean, you got this guy that just shows up, right? Living in Nazareth. And now he's come and he's preaching crazy sermons like you're going to see. And he's claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be, you know, from God, you know, God in the flesh. And people go like, like then prove it. And so Jesus is like, not proving it like we would have to prove our own power, but he's revealing, he, he's showing, he's demonstrating that he is the king with his identity. He is the king in his authority. And that's what we see in this text. We're gonna see Jesus's authority being manifested in three different ways, three different kind of manifestations or arenas that you can see here. The first one is Jesus's authority in his teaching. That's where Mark picks up. They go into Capernaum. 
And immediately, that's, that's, you know, that's like six times already. There'll be 35 times Mark's going to say immediately. I think we got two of them at least. No, I think we got three, three of them, I think, in this text even today. Immediately, Jesus walks in and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and Jesus began to teach. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Sometimes you get these places confused. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth and then he begins his ministry in Capernaum. And Capernaum is on the, the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing village. It's actually a, a little bit larger. It's larger than Nazareth, larger than Bethlehem. It's probably about uh, 1,500 to 2,000 people living here in Capernaum. It's a fishing village. Like I said, it's on the coast. And so Galilee would be the county, would be the region. And within that would be Nazareth would be a city in that as well as, or a village in that as well as Capernaum would have been another place. And like many of the villages in this time, there would have been a synagogue in the village. And so in Jerusalem, you've got the temple, and in the, the, out in the cities and in the villages, you would have had um, synagogues. And what synagogues really were, were they were like, uh, they were meeting uh, assembly halls, meeting places for people to congregate together to hear the, the reading and maybe even a little bit of the teaching of God's word. And so in the temple, you've got the priests at work doing sacrifices there, but out in the synagogues, there's not pastors or preachers, what you would have is you would have a, a ruler of the synagogue that would probably maybe even live near the synagogue. They would take care of it, would oversee the facilities, get things ready for worship. But there wouldn't necessarily be a, a pastor there like what we have in our church, right? You've got elders who come and preach and teach. What you would have is you would have itinerant rabbis that would come in through like on a, on a various Sunday morning and they would come in and they would teach. Or you would also have a, a different office the office of a scribe. So you've got rabbis and then you've got scribes. And what scribes would do is scribes could give like an like a authoritative um, rendering of God's word. And so you gotta remember, like when we talk about God's word in the Old Testament, a, a huge chunk of it is law. It's, a lot of it is civil law. Like I, I've heard a rumor that some of the ladies that you all were gonna try to study uh, Leviticus and Numbers, like kudos to you. This, I mean, nothing gets you excited for a Bible study, a women's Bible study like Leviticus. But it, hey, listen, we believe that all, all of, of the word is God's word. It's all equally inspired. And so what you're gonna find out when you get into Leviticus, when you get into Numbers, or maybe you're trying to read through a Bible reading program and you're getting into those is like, there's just tons of laws. And so what scribes would come and do, they'd be like almost like, like lawyers or judges. They would come into a synagogue and then they would give like kind of a, an, an authoritative teaching, if you will, about um, a, a binding interpretation on the scriptures about primarily civil issues. They would talk about your property or they'd talk about your cattle. They would talk about how, how, the, how, how giving applies to your offerings or they would talk about what's clean and unclean. Scribes were educated men. Um, they were men who were given some authority they were usually very honored by the people, but in the gospels, they, they're, they're the bad guys. They're, they're some of, like the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're some of the bad guys. And, and we can kind of understand that because sometimes, um, sometimes authority brings out the worst in people, does it not? I mean, sometimes you give a person a little bit of, of power and a little bit of authority and it really, 
it goes to their head, right? It, it, it corrupts them from the inside. And, and so we can kind of understand that. Now, Jesus isn't a scribe. Jesus is an itinerant rabbi. He's a teacher. He's traveling about, going into synagogue, preaching and teaching. He may have already preached and teached in Nazareth. Now he's in Capernaum, a larger synagogue, giving now a, a teaching. So verse number 22, Jesus gives this teaching and the teaching isn't, it isn't covered what he says. But look at what, at the response to it. And they, the crowd, they were astonished. They were surprised. They stood in awe of his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Like they, they, they recognize, even though Jesus as a rabbi is more of a preacher, teacher, less of, of an authoritative verse, uh, voice, but yet they, they realize that the scribes have some authority, but Jesus has more authority. Like, like, have you ever encountered uh, the voice of authority, right? Maybe the, maybe the stern rebuke or word from a, from a father that said, like, I've already told you once, boy, don't make me tell you again. You know, that voice of authority, you hear that, and you, you tighten up a little bit, you straighten up. Or maybe the voice of authority, whenever the, the officer comes, knock on the window and says, license and registration, do you have any idea how fast you were driving? You know, before you slammed on the brakes when you saw me, before that, when you were driving, like, like that voice of authority? Or some of you have had, um, I don't know, pleasure or displeasure of, of joining the military and having that drill instructor <laughs> yell at you, you know? Like I, I have heard, I had not been there, I, but I have heard, I, I would probably do the same. I've heard that on the first couple of nights in boot camp that you can hear grown men sob in their bunks and maybe, you know, ladies as well. May the voice of authority. And that's what they, they, they encounter, that kind of voice. But yet, it's not just that Jesus' voice or his preaching and teaching, it's not just authoritative because it was bold or because it was stern. It's not, the thing that captures their attention isn't just that his, his teaching was passionate or that his teaching was clear. I'm sure that it was all of those things. I'm sure that it was bold and clear and passionate and precise and compelling. But, but notice what they say, he speaks as one who had authority. What, what, is that, what does that mean to, for Jesus to have authority? Well, the, the clue is there's a word nestled in the word authority. Another word, a root word in that. Do you see it? It's the word author. And that, and that clues us in, though, to what made Jesus's, I think, teaching and preaching so, so different. The contrast. What was the contrast? Here was the contrast. The contrast was that Jesus was speaking as the author of the scriptures. That Jesus spoke in the, in the first person, not in the second or the third person like I do. That Jesus will say things like, you have heard it said, now I say to you. See, that's authority. That's speaking as, a, as an author. That's speaking as one who's writing and giving scripture out to people. Jesus will say about the prophecies in the Old Testament, like, like Isaiah 53, that like, and Isaiah 61, hey, hey, you remember this prophecy Jesus will say? And then he'll read it to them and he'll say, today it's being fulfilled in your hearing. Like that's what we're talking about here. That Jesus is teaching, it was binding and it was authoritative because he spoke as the author of the scriptures because he is God. The scripture is in him, coming from him. And Jesus' authority, it gets the response of the crowd. But then notice there's someone else or something else in the room that responds to Jesus' authority. 
Verse number 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Now, the immediately here is, gets a little convoluted. It should actually kind of be moved down. It should say, and there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and immediately, that's actually in the Greek where the immediately goes, and immediately cried out. Jesus finishes preaching and teaching. Like, think about that. Like, we're thankful for that, that there wasn't a disruption that it's almost like hey, there's, a, there's order when it even happens under God's sovereign hand. Jesus finishes, and as soon as he finishes, maybe they have a, a hymn of invitation. I don't know how he finished, but as soon as he finishes, immediately this unclean spirit cries out, we see here. And he cries out, and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Question. Have you, second question, have you come to destroy us? And then look, look at this almost like a confession. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this is the, the second realm to which we see Jesus has authority. Jesus is authoritative in his teaching. He's teaching not from the second or third person, but from the first person, Scripture. He's giving Scripture as he teaches. But then notice also he has authority over um, the demonic, over the darkness, what happened in the first two verses was actually pretty normative. A traveling itinerant rabbi coming in, teaching, that's normal, right? In their context, in their time, that would have been normal. His authority, not very normal. But what happens in response to his authority is totally not normal. I mean, the, the reality is as we, as we read the gospel accounts, sometimes we probably get the idea that um, demonic possession and exorcism and things like that, that they were probably normative, right? Like you've also heard in other third world countries and places, you hear missionaries that come and they, they tell about, you know, things such as these happening. And so sometimes we can maybe possibly think that those were normative things happening within, within, the, uh, within the culture of this time. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. Like even as we think about biblically, like think about uh, demonic possession in the Old Testament. Now listen, I'm not Satan saying that Satan's not active in the Old Testament. Certainly he is. He absolutely is active. But I want you to think about demonic possession and exorcism in the Old Testament. You think of any cases? And now you've got these occurrences. Mark will cover the most occurrences of demonic possession and exorcisms occurring. Mark, the, the most of them are in the Gospels, you know. Then you get to the end of the, the, the book of John. Cross over into Acts. In the book of Acts, you only have two accounts. In all of Acts, 28 chapters, you'll have two accounts of demonic possession and exorcism. Never is it mentioned in the epistles. In fact, even in culture and in history, as we read about, you know, parallel stories of history occurring at this time, no, no real, no body, no Jewish historian except for one will talk about anything about exorcisms. One guy will say, a, a Jewish historian will say, there was a rabbi who was in the area who performed exorcisms, a great many of them. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. And so what you see here, well, you know, what is occurring here? What, what is, what's, what's happening here? And, and here's what's happening in this time is you're seeing is an intensification of demonic activity around Jesus. That's what we'll see here. I mean, in fact, look at how the text ends. It ends with Jesus doing healings. And then it says there, Mark says, and he cast out many demons. Now, now why do we have this intensification 
here at this time around the person and the work of Jesus. It's, it's because Satan and his minions, they know that their days are numbered. Notice that even what this demon says, you know, we know you, he says. We know you. They know who Jesus is. Why do they know who Jesus is? Because Jesus was there in the, in the person of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. Jesus was there the day that Satan and all of his minions were, were cast out of heaven on the first judgment. See, there's a first judgment, a second, second judgment, and then there's a final judgment. And the first judgment took place before Genesis 1 was written, but Jesus speaks about it in the book of Luke. Jesus will say, I was there the day that Satan fell from, from heaven like lightning. The day that Satan and his minions, his demons, and demonic forces were cast out of heaven. All of these treasonous angels, they were judged. They were cast out of heaven and they, they, they came into this sphere, into this world in that time. Jesus says, I was there then. They know him because they remember him there. And now Jesus is back and look at his question. Have you come to destroy us? Like they're aware that there's going to be a final judgment that's covered in the book of Revelation. There's just these miniature judgments between now and then. And that's what Jesus has come as a second judgment. That's what he's offering even here as he exercises the demon. And what you have here is, is the son of God coming into their territory. It is what we said last week. The kingdom of God is being inaugurated. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. But it, the kingdom of God doesn't come into a vacuum. It's not neutral territory. It's God breaking into what's satanic and demonic and fallen and dark and broken. And he's coming, bringing life and bringing light. Even John will say in 1 John uh, chapter 3, I believe it is, he says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And they understand this and they're intimidated by him. And what they're doing in this time is they're, they're marshalling all of their efforts against Jesus. Notice what the demon says, this unclean spirit in verse number 24, he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He asks the question, have you come to destroy us? And they understand their days are number. And even in this, whenever the demon, the, the unclean spirit says to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, that's, that was his human title. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth was kind of a, actually, it, it's true of who he was, but it's used throughout the gospels by individuals as a derogatory title to Jesus. It's to really highlight his humanity and to take away his divinity in that. That Nazareth was a, a forgotten area, right? I talk about it, I mean, it's, it's like for us in our context, maybe about possibly like, like bald knob. I mean, you know, we would ask the question like Nathaniel asked the question. Remember whenever they say, hey, this one, this rabbi is coming. He's God, he's from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel says, could there be anything good come from Nazareth? It'd be the similar to, to Bald Knob. And we would say, you know, if, if, if some up and coming start come out of Bald Knob, we would say, can anything good come out of Bald Knob? Except for the Joneses, of course. Similar thing. And so the demon even, he even, he hints at that. We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, in his humanity. And I, I just kind of picture Jesus giving a glare in that moment. You know, I had a I got great dad stern dad my dad could give me a look and I'd just go like numb you know it'd be like what are you what are you like jello you know just wow stop doing whatever I'm doing right there I'm almost 50 years old and my dad could give me that look now and I would like uh, straighten up and act right and I just picture Jesus maybe doing the same thing looking at him we know who you are Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy him and then and then that look and the unclean spirit coming back I know who you are 
And then look at what he follows up. You are the Holy One of God. There you go. That's who I am. I'm not just a rabbi and a teacher from Nazareth. I'm the Holy One of God who's invading and coming into your space and to your time. And then look what Jesus does. He offers judgment. That judgment is an exorcism. Jesus rebuked him saying, now notice how he, what he says here, be silent and come out of here. There's no, there's no fanfare. There's no arguing. There's no warring. There's no need because Jesus is in absolute authority. And what does this demon do? This unclean spirit, it convulses the man and he cries out with a loud voice and he came out of him. He's not all that obedient, right? Kind of half obedient like our, because Jesus would be silent and he's kind of half obedient, right? Like, a, like some of our kids can be half obedient at times and he comes out with this loud voice and then notice what the crowd, they're, they're, they're all amazed and we can understand that. They're questioning among themselves saying, what is this? Now notice what they say. It's not just that they correlate the events in the, to the man, but they correlate the event to the teaching as well. What is this? This is a new teaching with authority. This is, this is the authority of God's word they're encountering. They're encountering the authority of God's word. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And we can understand this. Imagine if we had... A, de a demonic possessed person show up and we cast that demon out. That would be all over Facebook. Frame would spread about that event. And so we understand it. News traveled fast. Hey, did you hear what happened down at the synagogue this morning? You, you picked a bad morning to miss, right? I know the game was late last night, but you should have showed up early because you really missed something that was happening there. And thirdly, we see the third manifestation of Jesus' authority as he has authority over disease. Again, what is this king and what is his kingdom like? Well, he's one who has authoritative teaching. He's one who has authority over the forces of darkness. And he's one who is, he, he's vanquishing the enemies of God, we can even say. And he's one who's bringing health and healing and prosperity and goodness to his people. Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and he entered into the house of Simon and Andrew. We saw them last week with James and John, the first four of the 12 disciples. In fact, as we even think about this, in Capernaum, there, there is a, there's, a, there's a synagogue that's been, um, it's, it's still there. It's the remains. There's some pillars that are standing up. Now, that synagogue in Capernaum, if you want to get on that plane, I probably wouldn't go right now, but, you know, there will be a time again. Hopefully, we can go back to Israel. You can do a Holy Land tour, and you can go to Capernaum, and you can see a synagogue there. Now, that synagogue is probably not this synagogue that's found in Mark. I mean, that synagogue was probably built in, I don't know, the 4th or the 5th century, they say, A.D., but underneath that synagogue, there is a foundation of another synagogue, and that's probably the synagogue right here that, that Mark's talking about. And then just like a, a stone's throw away from that synagogue, they found unearthed a, a house. Now, the way that they do, uh, I don't know, de demolition in that culture is different than how we do it. Here, we tear stuff down. Over there, what they do is they build stuff up and that's for our benefit. 
Because what they do is they build stuff up. It's called a tell, a T-E-L. As they build up these mounds of things, what they're doing is they're, they're covering over homes and houses and buildings and all those things. And then what we get to do, archaeologists, that is, real archaeologists, not just Indiana Jones, but real archaeologists who get to go over, they get to dig down. And as they dig down, they find layers. They're called strata within the tells of different eras and different times. In fact, the city of Jerusalem, they say, has 27 stratas to it. And so what they did is they went in, they find the synagogue, down the road, just like I said, a stone's throw away, they find it there. As they're digging down, they find an old house with the wall still standing up. And inscribed on one of the walls, there's written inside there this, look, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And we believe that's probably this very home that's discovered, that's being talked about here. Probably the house of Andrew and, uh, and Simon is that very home. And then there was probably a, a church, maybe a house church that met there for some time. And so we have inscribed there. And so this is like, this is real. This is what's happening. And, and, and I want to bring that up because what you have here isn't just like some fanciful story that's happening here. I mean, notice the, the, the detail that is given versus the details that's left out. Like if you were like make-believe story, trying to tell a story, there's some details here that are given that, that why would you even say it like that? And then there's a lot of details that are left out. Look at verse number 30. It says, as they, as they go into this home, Simon's mother-in-law, she's lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her, more about that in a second, in verse number 31, and he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Now all mother-in-law jokes aside, I normally don't tell mother-in-law jokes because I had great mother-in-law, so we'll leave all of those aside. But notice in this story, if you will, will like the role of Jesus here. Jesus isn't a, a traveling healer. He's not trying to draw big crowds and put on a show. In fact, notice what Jesus is doing. He's doing the very opposite of that thing. Even whenever he exercises the demon, he says, be silent of that. Over and over again, Jesus will say, be silent. He's not trying to, to draw a crowd based upon uh, what he does, but rather who he is. That's what he's doing. In fact, notice again, there's no fanfare here. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is simply responding to a need. He is using his authority judiciously. And that's, that's important. I bring that out because what someone does with authority oftentimes reveals truths about their heart and about their character. So I already said it earlier, but maybe you've experienced it either. Like you give a person a little bit of authority and, and, and it oftentimes can corrupt. We'll, we'll say stuff like power corrupts, Right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely or something, you know, there's a saying like that, but really power doesn't corrupt. What it does is reveals corruption. It reveals uh, a desire to, to be in control, to take charge, to, to lord things over people. Have you ever experienced that? Coworker, right? You're, 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 in, you're in work and your colleague or your coworker gets a promotion and now they're in a place over you and they change. We were friends at one time and now you're like, not just like telling me what to do because that's your job, but you're like lording it over me. Who are you? What's happened there is that that power has revealed something about them. But notice with Jesus, this isn't true. I mean, Jesus has absolute power and yet he doesn't use that power for his own good. If you were given absolute authority, how would you use that authority? Would you not probably use it for your good? 
If you had all knowledge, would you not use that for those winning lottery tickets? Oh, but I would do a lot of good with that money, right? If you had absolute power, you would use it in some probably corrupt way. And yet Jesus has absolute authority and he doesn't use it for his own benefit, but for the good and the benefit of others. This is a king unlike any other king. He's responding to needs as they arose. I mean, this story, as we read it, it doesn't have um, any of the marks in it of a story that someone would be making, making up. There's no razzle-dazzle. There's no hocus-pocus. There's no fanfare. Simply, Jesus cared about Peter. He cared about Simon, and he cared for Simon's mother-in-law. Mark says, simply, and he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. He goes into the home. They say, hey, my mother-in-law is really sick. She's got a fever. Jesus walks into the room and he reaches out his hand and he lifts her up. Now, now notice even in the story you have where Jesus, and this is his, this is his uh, normative for Jesus, he, he'll speak to demons, but he touches someone when he heals them. And Jesus does that. It doesn't even say that he says anything. He simply takes her by the hand, he helps her up, and the fever's gone. The fever just, it, it, it just left her. Just instantaneously as Jesus took her by the hand, the fever vanquished, the fever left, and she's just better. She's just flat out better in an instant. And I I love this attention to detail because notice what she does. It says she began to serve them. I love that because maybe maybe you have a a good mother-in-law and that's what mother-in-laws are apt to do. I had a good mother-in-law and that's what she would have been apt to do. Better than that, I think about this text and I think about my grandma. This is how my grandma would be. You go over to visit my grandmother and she just would take immediately, you know, if she was sick, she would get up out of bed, like divorce from a healing from Jesus, you get up out of bed and she would come in and begin serving. She'd say, hey, honey, do you want any coffee? No, grand, I'm good. Honey, would you like some toast? No, grand, I'm good. And my, my grandmother, it wouldn't be sufficient just to stop there. She would have to go through the whole contents of her pantry asking you one by one, do you want some popcorn? Do you want a peanut butter sandwich? I got one of those little pizzas in the freezer. No, grand, I'm good. No, grand, I'm good. No, grand, I'm good. And this is what this lady's doing. She's just doing what's probably natural to her. She begins to serve the people around her because after she's uh, experienced this healing from Jesus. And then it ends, the text ends with, at that, that evening at sundown, again, that's a detail. This isn't a fanciful story filled with unnecessary details. Mark's just telling it like it happened. Like, like I think, again, what we believe is he's not there first person, but Simon was there. That's Simon Peter. And he's the one who's the, inter- Mark is his interpreter. So Simon Peter's just, look at this. This is one day. This is just one day with Jesus. One Sabbath day. I don't know if you could go back in your memory of a, of a day and you could say, I remember this thing happened and this occurred and then this occurred. And that's what, that's what Simon's doing as he tells Mark. I, I remember this one Sabbath day we were in Capernaum and it's the day my mother-in-law was so sick and he's just telling that story. And then that evening, now why is that important evening? Because again, it's Sabbath and, and on the Sabbath, people didn't get out and about. It's a Saturday and so it's a day of rest and so they could go to the synagogue, they could hear the rabbi teach and then they would go back to their homes and they would just kind of lay low until sundown. Sabbath was from sunrise to sundown and then at sundown, you could come out and you could mill around and that's what they do. And then in the evening, when you can get out and about, they, they came and they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. 
And he would, again, would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. No need for fanfare, no need for any of this. You know who I am. You know what I've come to do. I've come to destroy you and your works. Get out of him. Now, I want to give to us three application points. We walk through the text, explain the text. Now let's apply the text to us. Three things. Number one is this. Biblical preaching is an act of spiritual authority and spiritual warfare. What we're doing right now is I'm assuming a role of authority as I preach and teach God's word to you. Like I I am a man in authority as I come under the authority of this word. Now, I could, I could talk for an hour on this. This is why we do biblical preaching and teaching. We believe this is in authority. This is anointed. This carries the weight. My job is to come under this, is to take this during the week and extract from this and teach and to preach this right here. My authority, the, my jurisdiction in authority, it starts and it stops with God's word. But it's why we do what we do. So this evening when I lay my head down in my bed, you know, as I think about this sermon, you know what I can say? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Why? Because it's his word that we're preaching and proclaiming. It is, a, it is his word that is in authority. It's why Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 2, it's why women can't preach and teach. He said to do that is to subvert the, the, the created order in things. It's not that Paul has a low view of women, but what he has is a high view of the Bible for what the Bible is, as the very authority, as the very word of God coming into our lives. And because similarly, like what Jesus is doing, when Jesus preached authoritatively, Satan was at work. And that's why I say biblical preaching is an act of spiritual authority, but it's also an act of spiritual warfare. That as I'm preaching and teaching and God's word is being taught and God's word is being heralded, Satan, even though we can't see him, he is actively at work. Now, sometimes we read in the gospels about these demonic possessions and exorcisms. And sometimes we think like, why doesn't that happen now? Like, like, like why, why, why don't we experience, or you're thinking, sometimes you think, maybe, maybe I am experiencing it around me, right? And here's what I, here's what I wanna, wanna say to that, is I think that Satan, he's very smart. The Bible talks about him as, as, as the wiles of, of the devil. He schemes, he's smart, he's wily, and he knows what he's doing. His ultimate purpose and plan is to, is to take away God's glory It's to get you not to believe in God, not to follow God, not to honor God, not to worship God. Now, in our our time, in our culture, let me ask you this. Would it be easier to believe the Bible if you saw inexplicable demonic activity taking place? Like if you saw somebody with a, with a demon and he's like, it's obvious this dude's foaming at the mouth, like everything that you think of conjure up when you think about demonic uh, possession, everything you've seen in every movie, and then all of a sudden somebody exercises that and you just go, oh my gosh, would that cause you to disbelieve the Bible or to believe the Bible more? My guess is it would ca- probably cause you to believe the Bible more. I don't have a category for this. We just experienced a miracle. Satan knows that. And so what Satan does is he doesn't work in those obvious ways in our time and in our culture. Again, in past times and in in other cultures, he may work like that. 
But listen, make no mistake, Satan is still at work, even in this room. Like Jesus talks about in a couple different places, or the Bible speaks about the different works of Satan, and we see them as more subtle works. Like Jesus will talk about in the the parable of the sower. He'll talk about the sower that goes out and he's sowing the seed of God's word, and he talks about the different soils that it lands on. Do you all remember that parable? On one of them, he says the the seed falls on the the path, on on the soil that's been beaten down by people's feet. And as the the seed lays there, it can't penetrate the ground. And the ground, again, is an illustration for our hearts. It can't penetrate our hearts. And so what happens while it's just laying there, it's very vulnerable. And he says that the birds of the air come and they they eat up the seed. Like, have you ever done that? Sowed some grass seed and you don't put straw down over it. Next thing you know, you got a bunch of blackbirds out there in your yard. You get the shotgun, you know, you got to scare them off. You shoot at them. You don't shoot them. You're just trying to scare them off, shoo them off because they'll eat up all your grass seed. Listen, Jesus says that's what happens when the word is preached, hearts aren't fertile. What happens is the seed lands on hard ground. And then what happens is the birds of the air, and he says that's the evil one. That's Satan. That's what he wants to do. He wants to come and he wants to gobble up God's word on a Sunday morning when you're sitting here to keep it from penetrating your heart and changing you and giving you life and leading you to worship and to know God deeper. How does he do that? How do you think, what's some, some, again, getting behind, underneath the subtlety and the, maybe even, or the craziness into the subtlety of God at work, how do you think he does that? Well, I can tell you a couple ways. One is he uses distractions. How does he come, Satan come and steal God's word? Well, while I'm preaching, you're distracted. Stuff's happening here. You're like, oh, oh, oh. right? Your phone's going off. Your thoughts are, right? That's, that's how it happens. Another way that it probably happens that he comes in and he steals is, um, is sometimes we, we, we have a dismissive heart or dismissive in our minds. Sometimes we're just distracted. Sometimes we have a busy life, right? Lives are busy, but we don't guard our Saturdays. So we show up on a Sunday morning and we're tired and angry and frustrated and we're like, Back-to-back slam dunks, you just gave that up? Are you kidding me? We have all of those things in our hearts and our minds and they distract us. And that's why we, we have to pray. We have to ask God to, to, to break up the fallow ground, to make our hearts fertile so that we can hear God's word, so we can receive it. But, but know this. Another way that, it, that he's at work is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that the that the enemy, he, he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep you from seeing the glory and the beauty of the gospel. And some of you are here and you've yet to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and bow your knee before him. And that just isn't proof of your own stubborn heart. What's come into play in that is the enemy is at work blinding you, veiling the gospel so that you can't see the beauty and the glory and the power and the supremacy and the worth of Jesus in the gospel. But the good news is, see, that sounds very grim. The good news is God has power, just like in the creation account that he can make light shine in darkness. God can make light shine in our dark hearts. And that's why we gotta pray. That's why there's a group of us that gather on Sunday mornings 
around 10 o'clock downstairs to pray. What are we praying? We're engaging in, in warfare. We're engaging in spiritual warfare in that room. And, and I, just, I just think that probably few of us actually have like a wartime mentality when we show up on Sunday mornings. I mean, if I came to you and said, hey, the Russians are invading, those of you that grew up with Red Dawn, right? Hey, we'd be like, Wolverine, you know, we're going at it because why wartime mentality? And I just don't know that many of us have a wartime mentality. I think we just, hey, we're gonna sing some songs. We're gonna hear Pastor Andy go for probably, hopefully not more than 50 minutes and then we're gonna get out of here. And this text is a reminder that what we do in here matters. And we gotta pray and we gotta be humble and we gotta ask God that he would thwart the work of the enemy and he would let the gospel shine brightly in our own hearts and that our hearts would be fertile soil. Let me give you application point. Um, this was number two, I'm gonna skip it. I'm gonna give you application number three. So we see in this text is we see the uselessness of a mere intellectual knowledge of Jesus. The uselessness of just a mere intellectual knowledge of Jesus. The unclean spirit says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God, he even says. That is who he is. He has a knowledge of Jesus. He gives positive affirmation of who he is, but that isn't sufficient for salvation. It's what Jesus's brother James will say when he says, even the demons believe and they shudder. That what we're at it is something deeper than just a mere intellectual knowledge, but a belief in, a love for, a desire to follow Jesus. Martin Luther, he said that the, that the life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior, but it's quite another to say that he is my savior. That's what we're getting at. Possessive pronouns that he is my savior. It's one thing to say that Jesus is a king. It's a quite another thing, Luther says, to say that Jesus is my king. The devil can say the first. The true Christian says the second that Jesus is my savior. He saved me from my sins, the sins that I've committed, the wrongs that I have done. That Jesus is my king and I'm submitted to his authority that this is what it means to be a Christian. It is to recognize Jesus's authority and to humbly submit to it and let him change our identity. That's what he did to, 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 to the fishermen. Lay down your nets and follow me. I'm gonna change your identity. You're now gonna be fishers of men, no longer fishers of fish. You're gonna follow me and I'm gonna change everything about you. And that's what we are called to do. We are called to recognize Jesus's authority for who he is as the divine servant king, the savior of the world, to recognize his authority and to humbly submit to him, submit to him and to submit to his words in all things, that the one who has the ultimate voice of authority, he has come. That's what Mark is saying. Only he's not coming in and saying, hey, can you pick up this room? 
What he's telling us to do is to repent and to believe in him, to bow down before him, to honor him in all things, and to follow him, to be changed by him. That is what he's saying. Only these aren't just forceful commands from a booming voice. These are truths ultimately coming from a loving father. The kingdom of hand, Jesus has said, is the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. And, and you and I, we get a glimpse of that kingdom where King Jesus reigns and rules. It's a foretaste and it makes us longing for more. It's where God's enemies have been vanquished and where his people flourish. This world is full of sin and sorrow, but Jesus is bringing a new world, a new kingdom, in this text, we see Jesus' authority, his authoritative teaching, his authority over demons, his authority over disease. But here now at this table, we remember the means by which he will defeat all of those things. John says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Paul says that in the cross, Jesus disarms the rulers and the authorities, referring to Satan and his team. He puts them to an open shame. He triumphs over them in Jesus. Peter will quote Isaiah 53. By Jesus' stripes, he says, you and I, we have been healed. We've been healed from, our, from sin. We've been healed by the effects of sin. And the cross of Christ, it secures, listen, it secures our victory. Possess a pronoun. Our victory. That we with who, that we who repent and worship and humble our hearts before him, we participate in Jesus' victory. You and I who come to this table, it is here that we will say, Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my king. And so when we come and when we honor him in that, let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to come into this world to die for sinners like us. We too, we know who he is, the perfect son of God, the eternal begotten of the father who takes on human flesh, becomes like one of us, lives for 33 years on this earth, is put to death, lays in a tomb, rises again, victory. Oh, sweet victory. Victory over all of your enemies. He ascends on high where he's currently filling his role as both king and intercessor. King over all, even though it may not look like it, but he is the king over all and he is our intercessor. And it's in his name that we pray. And as I even pray right now, it is him that hears me. He hears me. And he loves me. And he receives us. And we come to this table remembering who he is and who he makes us to be. We remember him and the frailty of his flesh that is that this bread that represents his body that was broken. And the cup of this juice, it, remind, it reminds us of his blood that was shed. And it is with this that we enter into the kingdom. It's by this and what it means that we come to know him. And we humbly submit before him, our servant king. Jesus, be honored and Jesus, be exalted and Jesus, be big. And Jesus, do a work even now in this moment. Thwart the work of the enemy that wants to steal the seed. Bind up the strong man again.
so that we may worship you, so that we may come to this table in, in just truthfulness in your name that we pray. Amen.